My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, January 22nd, 2013. Yeah, I, I don't know if I should call this program the Oh Goody Show. <laughs> it's just chock full of heresy. Oh Goody. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebrew. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, if I may, to start off today's program, I want to revisit a passage from Second uh, Timothy chapter 3. I want to read from chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4 a little bit, and I want to pick up a verse that is... <laughs> for whatever reason, I oft miss, but I think I need to bring it up. And here's the reason why. And then we're going to take a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here's the reason why. In in the time that I have been doing Fighting for the Faith, you know, it, we've been doing this program now for four and a half years on Pirate Christian Radio. And in that four and a half years, I have watched these false teachers, especially seeker-driven megachurch pastors, literally go from bad to worse. It's, um, it, I am not a fan of the, uh, of the logical fallacy known as the slippery slope argument. That being said, I think that there may be an objective case here based upon what God has revealed in his word that those who go off the rails theologically, you know, the, you may, it may not be many degrees off at first, but the farther they travel, the more error that they seem to compound. It's like a snowball. 
you know, it starts up on the top of the mountain and you're looking at that thing going, that's a snowball. And then somebody rolls it down the mountain and it, it starts rolling and picking up speed and picking up snow and debris and all kinds of bizarre twigs and, and, you know, pine needles and, and, you know, and then it plows into somebody and kills them. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so what I'm noticing is is a phenomenon that is described in scripture. Now, I, I don't want to say this is the slippery slope, but this is more or less along the lines of if you want to persist in your uh, false doctrine, then be warned. Scripture makes it clear that God is going to hand you over to it. You want you want to continue to resist the work of the Holy Spirit. And you know, basically, the Holy Spirit says, "Repent, repent." That's not true. This is not what I've revealed, you know. And you look, look in His Word, and you and you stubbornly refuse to repent. Eventually, it's as if God says, "Fine, you love lies. I'm handing you over to them." Now, to demonstrate this, I need to back it up from Scripture because I, I don't want to make an assertion that is not there in Scripture. But check my exegesis. See if I'm uh, if I'm on track here. Okay, Second uh, Timothy. Chapter 3, uh, verse 1. Now, I understand we t- covered this passage recently. I apologize for the redundancy, but sometimes I, I, I have to work through passages several times. Um, in fact, I'm constantly working through passages over and over again in, in order to kind of you know, plummet for its, its, its real nutrition. It, it's kind of like sucking the marrow out of a bone, if you know what I mean. But um, anyway, here's what it says. Second uh, Timothy chapter three, verse one, but understand this in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Yep. And for people will be lovers of self. Again, notice something here that, you know, the, 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 the overall context here is not talking about people out there who are lovers of themselves. And I mean outside of the church, unbelievers and pagans. That's what unbelievers and pagans do. Um, it's, it's, it's prophesying here a condition that creeps into and becomes a, a prominent feature within the visible church. Now, I, I, the reason I say visible church is because technically Christ's church isn't visible. And what I mean by that is is that when you gather together you know, at church – and invoke the name of Christ and the triune God, listen, there's there's going to be people among you uh, that are not Christians. And, you know, so you, can, you can't exactly see the church. Does that make sense? Anyway, but he, here's the idea. This, this is going to be a problem within the visible church. For uh, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, Heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households to capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men oppose the truth. Men who are corrupt in mind, disqualified regarding the faith, well, they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching. This is uh, Paul writing to young Pastor Timothy. You followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, 
all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me read that again in case you were thinking that doesn't apply to me. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And here's the verse I really wanted to key in on. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I think verse 13 here, the Holy Spirit is warning us, you know, one of the, you know, by the way, how do you know a false teacher? By their fruit. What's their fruit? Their teaching. Okay. I've taught on this before. And in in fact, if you want, if you haven't, if you haven't heard that segment of fighting for the faith, you can find it on our YouTube channel. What I've been doing is taking segments of fighting for the faith and making them stand alone segments and, and posting them on YouTube makes them easier to share. But I actually did a, um, a segment on, you know, you know, what does Jesus mean? He says that you'll know false teachers by their fruit. Uh, the answer is you'll know them by their teaching. So here we have this, you know, chapter three opens with this discussion of what's going to happen in the last days in the visible church. You've got all these people who have an appearance of, of righteousness, but uh, deny the power or godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They're always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And ultimately, they oppose the truth. And then it says in verse 13, these are people who will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I think we could safely say, based on what's going on here, is that uh, somebody who goes off the rails doctrinally, theologically, they are only going to progress into worse theology and doctrine. It's This is a... Think of it as a as a fatal disease. It it this is basically this is a death knell, and uh, the idea being is is that you know you you've been diagnosed with terminal cancer. Well, if you're diagnosed with terminal false doctrine, and you persist in this false doctrine, it's as if God hands you over to it and says adios, and your condition is spiritually terminal and fatal. So they go from you know, they, so imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And here's the positive part: but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Right, Paul points Timothy back to Scripture, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. What word? The the sacred writings. This would be the written word of God. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. How do you do that? Preach the word, get into the sacred writings, into the sacred text, the written word of God, the written word of God, which, according to Scripture here, is sufficient to make the man of God fully equipped for every good 
work. There is no good work that God would have you do that the word of God will not prepare you for. Okay, this is what he says. Now, kind of in the same vein, you know, a, a little cross-reference work here. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul again prophesying regarding the last times, okay, the last days. Here's what he says. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together uh, to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Listen to that again. Let no one deceive you in any way. It, Paul doesn't say here, listen, okay, it's okay if you let yourself be deceived in a few ways, you know, this way or that way. No, he, right, this is the Holy Spirit inspiring this, by the way. The, God, the Holy Spirit says, let no one deceive you in any way, okay? For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Now, that word rebellion in the ESV is the Greek word apostasia, okay? It is a flat-out, you can think of it as a militaristic rebellion against the established order of things, okay? So, Christ's return will not happen unless the rebellion, the apostasy, comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So the ultimate uh, apostasy is this man of lawlessness who sets himself up, and I would argue that Paul's not talking about a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. The temple of God in Paul's theology is none other than the body of Christ, the visible body of Christ. So this is a guy who is a Christian who sets himself up in the church claiming to be none other than Jesus Christ himself, and he's not, okay? So he says, do not, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Ah, I can't wait for that. Anyway, here's what it says. Verse 9, out of chronological order here, here's what it says. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs. And you can say false wonders. The word false here, pseudo, is applying uh, to both the signs and the wonders. So the, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and false wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, so take the two passages together, okay, because we're talking, according to Paul, we're talking about pretty much the same thing. In the last times, you know, you know, this is this is you know something that's going to happen. There's going to be a great apostasy in the church. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Um, they will have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. The, you know, it's it's and they're going to and these false teachers are going to go from bad to worse. And I think 
that uh, that basically verse 10 and 11 in 2 Thessalonians explains the reason why they go from bad to worse. And it's that uh, because they refuse to love the truth and be saved, God therefore sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. One of the things that strikes me as I watch what's happening in the church at large out there is some of the most ridiculous and patently obviously silly, stupid statements being made by these false teachers being eaten up by large crowds of people as if what they're hearing is the truth when if you have two brain cells and you use them, you would go, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Why would anyone believe this? This isn't Christianity. The Bible doesn't say anything of the sort. Answer to why? is because they're not using the two brain cells that God has given them because God has sent a strong delusion on them in judgment so that they might believe what is false because they did not love the truth. They didn't love it, so God sends a delusion. You know, I look at this, and I look at the state of the church, and I look at the crazy things being said out there, and objectively, objectively, it has gone from bad to way worse, which means that the future at this point, unless the church wholesale repents and casts these wicked false teachers and ear tickling narcissists out, the future, it's not looking so bright. It's not that there's, I'm not arguing the slippery slope in the sense that, you know, hey, once you start down this path, you end up like this. Instead, I'm trying to argue what God himself has, has revealed in his word that these false teachers and imposters go from bad to worse. That's one of the ways that you can identify them as false teachers. And so I think we live in very dangerous and treacherous times. And again, the admonition of the Holy Spirit is do not let anyone deceive you in any way. And the only way that's going to happen, get in to God's word. Don't take a lackadaisical approach to it. Don't let your mind wander while you're reading it. Get into it. Dive into it. God's word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And his word feeds us and sustains us. This is why Jesus said that it's written in scripture, the book of Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Get into the word, learn what it really says, learn what it really means, and don't sit there and allow yourself to be taught by these false teachers and do whatever you can to rescue some from the fires of hell who have come under the spell of these people, right? Because there's a strong delusion at work here. And these imposters are going from bad to worse. It's as if what we're seeing here is the judgment prophesied in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. All of this preceding the appearance of the great man of lawlessness. <clears throat> now, I, I don't know how long that's going to be, but I think we're definitely heading towards the great wind-up, if you know what I mean. Anyway, all right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, yesterday, um, I did, we spent time listening to uh, Mike and Cindy Jacobs uh, literally confess 
inadvertently that they were false prophets and that the apostolic council of prophet of prophet elders, well, they're false prophets too. Quite inadvertently on her part, she just totally let the, you know, <laughs> let the cat out of the bag that she's a false prophet. Wonderful stuff. But I thought it'd be interesting if we circled back and continued from where we left off yesterday to hear a little bit more of the details of the forthcoming uh, things for which we need to be prepared for for the year 2012 and 2013. Uh, this, this, of course, is the distilled wisdom of the uh, Apostolic Council of Prophet Elders, and <laughs> we'll share that with you today. And then what we'll do, as promised yesterday, after the break, we're going to head down to the Rock Church in San Diego, California, and listen to uh, pieces of Russell Evans of Planet Shaker's message that he delivered on Friday night at the Planet Shakers Conference in San Diego. By the way, Russell Evans had the pulpit at the Rock Church on uh, uh, on Sunday, and uh, I'm working my way through that and may weave, you know, in a future installment of Fighting for the Faith, may circle back and, and uh, cover some of that. But uh, as a result of the fact that I think that Planet Shakers and Russell Evans may make more uh, future appearances here at Fighting for the Faith, I've actually given them their own update music, and we'll reveal that shortly. And then in hour number two, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be heading to uh, National Community Church in Washington, D.C. This is where Mark Batterson is the lead pastor, and we're going to be listening to a sermon by one of his associate pastors. His name is Joel uh, Schmidgall. And uh, the name of his sermon is called Seeking the Dreammaker, Seeking the Dreammaker. And this is a, a great example of, of a sermon where the person delivering the message is utterly clueless about what the Bible really teaches and says. And, I mean, this is a, this is a quote, sermon that five years ago, when, uh, when we were just starting to think about getting fi- uh, Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith up and running— I wouldn't have imagined somebody capable of who calls themselves a Christian pastor of really this kind of mishandling of scripture. So that's what we're going to be doing today. So make yourself comfortable. Uh, fuzzy bunny slippers, if you have them, they do enhance your listener experience. Tinfoil pyramid hats and other things like that to protect yourself are probably in order. But uh, since we're doing another uh, Cindy Jacobs update, we need to do this. What do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled by the dawning of the sun. They'll take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. Their twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. We'll just pick up where we left off. In fact, I'm going to back the audio up just a smidge so that we can get a little bit of context. And let's visit again uh, Cindy and Mike Jacobs uh, from their (laughs) (laughs) television. This is the dumbest name (laughs) for a TV show ever. But the name of their TV program, again, is 
God knows. So let's go back to their television program, God knows, and uh, back it up just a little bit for context, and then let's plow ahead and see if we can uh, figure out some of the details of uh, of what the Apostolic Council of Prophet Elders is trying to warn us about for the upcoming year 2013. Talk about economies that will shake. Of course, I don't think you had to be a prophet to know that, but the scriptures that everything that could can be shaken will be shaken, and uh, that certainly happened then we quoted hebrews 12 27 to 29 we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken and one other thing that we gave that was very interesting is we said that we need to be prepared for crisis crisis preparedness Mm -hmm. last year and this year yes yeah well and even back in 1999 yes well if you think about even 1999 mike when and we Y2K rolled around and, and we had said it's okay if you want to heap up some kind of emergency provision. Mm-hmm. Well, when 9/11 came, you see, I mean, what could have happened was people could have prepared. Yeah. You know, then, in other words, there was disruption that happened even that time, or a hurricane, or whatever. So last year, we said. Uh, from Joshua 1, 10, and 11, Joshua commanded the office of the people saying, pass through the camp and command the people saying, prepare provisions for yourself. Mm-hmm. Within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go and to possess the land. Okay, now notice, let me kind of point out what she's doing here. She's trying, she's reading from this year's official document, prepared and distilled by her regarding the prophecies and the things brought by seers and different prophetic streams and and those visionaries that are part of the so-called Apostolic Council of Prophet Elders, which, by her own admission yesterday, quite inadvertently, she actually proved that the whole, the whole lot of them, they're nothing but false prophets. Now, they're trying to warn us about the upcoming challenging times that we need to prepare provisions for. And so she's quoting from Joshua chapter 1, verses 10, 11, which says, Then Joshua commanded the officer, officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan and go in to possess the land. Well, Joshua chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, has absolutely nothing Nothing, zilch, not a new canadier, what, whatever you want to say. It has zero to do with you, you know, basically storing provisions for a challenging time. It's it's kind of like the idea of the armies of Israel are getting ready to go to war. They're going into a hostile territory to take the land. So get your provisions and get yourselves ready. We're crossing the Jordan. We're crossing this border and we're going in. Yeah, you, you, you see the difference? They weren't preparing for, quote, challenging times. They were preparing to take the land. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, what's funny is, is as you watch this or listen to this, how Cindy and Mike, I mean, they're completely clueless about what the Bible is really about themselves. You know, they, here they're reading God's word. It's right there. It's on their lips. And, you know, they're and they are utterly blind they have no clue whatsoever as to what's going on in this passage in context. They're going to do this again here in a minute. Hang on. 
And there were three things God gave us in admonitions. Number one, in the new season to come, face your fears. So God gave the Apostolic Council of Prophet Elders, number one, to prepare for the season ahead, you need to face your fears. In other words, what are you afraid of? Are you, are you afraid that God isn't good? I mean, is it afraid? Are you afraid God's going to fail you? Do you have confidence in God? And number two, prepare provisions. In other words, in some way, prepare for some kind of crisis. And number three, of course, I talked about realize the kingdom of heaven cannot be shaken. And that Israel's in an Isaiah 60 season is something else we said. So, That's, you know, I, what? Israel is in an Isaiah 60 season? They explain that later in the video, not here, but let's continue. Explain that. That's an, really yeah, exciting. I will. Isaiah Let me, 60 is amazing scripture Right, passage. but I don't want to move that fast yet, but we will go back to that in just a minute. Uh, think about here in the U.S., we just... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> any, um, <clears throat> any clue as to who wears the pants in that relationship? That's something, a horrible disaster, terrible Um uh, or, uh, and, and people were without lights. Oh, they for without weeks, yeah. You're talking food. about Hurricane Sandy. Yeah, Hurricane Sandy. Or think about the, the tsunami mm-hmm. that came to Japan. Well, there were some people that had prepared, you right. know, emergency preparedness. And so... Not because of anything that the Apostolic Council of Prophet Elders said. I don't recall the Apostolic Council of Prophet Elders prophesying the earthquake and tsunami in Japan. When the tsunami came, of course, some people had to flee. They couldn't. It was irrelevant. But for some, they had prepared. And I had been told that they had provision and they were able to eat from that provision. They had emergency lighting and so forth. So you don't prepare out of fear. You prepare out of being like the wise and foolish virgins. Uh, I mean, but more, the, more wise, like the wise, the wise the virgins, so not yes. the foolish virgins. And so I think... Now, listen to what they do with this uh, passage from Matthew 25 regarding the wise and foolish virgins. That came out of Matthew. I didn't write it down here. I think it's Matthew 25, where it talks about the virgins. And yeah, that there were, was going to be a wedding. Right. And they always had the virgins who would have their lamps. Mm-hmm. And uh, like they the, were waiting for the, the bridal, master, the waiting for the, the groom to come. Mm-hmm. And some, half of them, were prepared with extra oil because right. what happened was the... The master was delayed or the groom was delayed a little. Some of them ran out of oil and therefore were not prepared. And they were characterized as unwise virgins. And then there were some who had had extra provisions laid up of oil. And therefore, they were able to replenish their lamps. And when the delay came, they were ready. And that's the whole point of what we're using in this illustration. Mm -hmm. Okay, do you know how absurd that reading of Matthew 25 is? And it totally misses the whole point. What is Matthew 25 about, by the way? Okay, Matthew 25, in there we have several different parables of judgment and Christ's return. Okay, so you know, so you have the parable of the virgins, and then you have the man going away on a journey who entrusted uh, his property and gave talents to his servants. And then, um, and then you have the, the story of the sheep and the goats, the separation of the sheep and the goats. So Matthew 25 
Following on the heels of Matthew 24, Jesus' Olivet Discourse, which tells us about the end times, okay, and Jesus' first warning regarding the end times is, is let no one deceive you, okay? Matthew 25 is not, and let me say this again, is not about you being prepared for a tsunami, for um, economic shakings, or turmoil, or anything of the sort. In other words, Matthew 25 is not the, the passage that gives us the biblical teaching for the slogan for the Boy Scouts, be prepared. Or, you know, see, that's, that's not what this is about. Remember, when Jesus gives a parable, okay, he's using allegory and metaphor and saying the kingdom of God is like something, okay? And then he uses an illustration that it would be commonly understood there, but the meaning itself is hidden in in the symbols of uh, of the parable, okay? So what's he talking about? When we look at the immediate context, you've got Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, regarding the end times, then Matthew 25, a parable regarding judgment, uh, you know, the kingdom of the 10 virgins really is talking about the end of the world. Okay. And Jesus's return. It's really easy to pull this apart, by the way, too, if you understand, uh, what is called the rule of faith. Okay. You, you, you literally interpret this according to the basic idea that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Okay, that those who have faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they've been brought to repentance and trust in him. So salvation is by grace through faith alone. So you're interpreting it in light of that concept. Here's the idea. Let me read it. So then the kingdom of heaven, this is Matthew 25, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be like, notice the metaphor or, you know, uh, you know, uh, or simile language here, will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Let me give you just a quick, simple understanding of what's going on here. Who are the wise virgins? They are the ones who have faith. Who are the foolish virgins? Those are those who persist in sin and unbelief and refuse to be forgiven, right? They continue to resist the work of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word. They refuse to be forgiven, so they have faith, but they think they're smart, but they're not, okay? So when it says that they fell asleep, what does that mean? They died, Okay, it's real simple. They died. What have people been doing since Christ has, has ascended into heaven, even before that? Dying, right? Are they dying in the faith? Or are they denying with faith, dying with faith? Or are they dying without faith? It's real simple. So the bridegroom was delayed. Who's the bridegroom? Christ is. Christ is the bridegroom. So the idea here, he's been delayed. Does that sound anything like your you know, status right now? It's been 2,000 years since Christ has ascended into heaven. He's been, quote, delayed. He told us he would take some time coming back, right? Right. It's that simple. So those, those who are wise are those who die with faith. So the oil here is like faith. It's real simple. Okay. So as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose. What's this? 
This is the general resurrection of the dead here that's prophesied by Christ. Okay? And they trim their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But see, the thing is, I can't give you my faith. You can't give your faith away to somebody else, right? But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go gather, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Well, how foolish is that? Do you think there's going to be oil sales people at, you know, in the middle of the night? Nope. None, right? But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us you, and for you, go rather to the dealers, buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with them to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The day nor the hour of what? The return of the bridegroom, Christ. When he calls everybody into the great wedding feast. And if you have no oil... You're going to find yourself on the outside. What is that oil? Faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what this passage is talking about. So here we've got Cindy and Mike Jacobs literally using this passage as some kind of underpinning for the latest prophetic insights from the from the Apostolic Council of Prophet Elders and rather than understanding what this text is all about, these are like two blind people groping about in the dark trying to make sense of something that they don't even understand because this is not from God the Holy Spirit. It's utter nonsense. We continue. Be ready. And that is Matthew 25. And uh, that the, some, you know, and the thing is, even the foolish virgins had some oil. Mm-hmm. But they hadn't made preparation for a longer season. Right. So, one thing you can do is pray and ask the Lord what you should do. At least prepare for, you know, short-term crisis of some kind. And, you know, and uh, uh, there's a lot of things on the web you can find out how to do that. Mike and I have a solar generator, mm-hmm. you know, so if we needed to for a short season, we could keep our refrigerator going or lights or we could uh, keep our cell phone you know, charged Charged, and things like that. Um, Many people don't even have landlines anymore, so they have to in some way, you know, or a crank machine. Now, why is that prophetic? Because the prophets say, prepare. Mm -hmm. You know, and you remember in the time of Agabus uh, that the prophet Agabus in in, uh, the book of Acts... Yeah, but see, there's a big difference between Agabus and um, Cindy Jacobs and the members of the Apostolic Council of Prophet Elders. Agabus was a true prophet. Cindy Jacobs admitted, now I'll admit it's an inadvertent admission on her part, but she's an admitted false prophet. Prophesied there was going to be a famine in the land. That's right. And they should prepare provisions for people that, that were going to be struck by this famine. Right. Well, for some reason... At that time, they didn't just pray it away. The prophet simply said it's going (laughs) to... Listen to what she just said there. Well, at that time, for whatever reason, they didn't just pray it away. Yeah, you know why? Because that idea of declaring and, and praying things away like that 
That's not what the Bible teaches. So here she's dumbstruck by the fact that the, the, the church at the time of Acts and the time of Agabus and this great famine that occurred in the ancient world during the first century, that they didn't do the things that Cindy Jacobs would do. And that was decree and declare the famine to be broken, busted, and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. The reason for that is because she also fails the other test of the false of, of prophets, and that is she teaches false doctrine. This is, again, more proof that she's a false prophetess. Listen, back this up just a little bit. Listen again. In uh, the book of Acts, prophesied there was going to be a famine in the land. That's right. And they should prepare provisions for people that that were going to be struck by this famine. Right. Well, for some reason, at that time, they didn't just pray it away. Right, because your idea of praying things away and decreeing and declaring is not sound doctrine. It's a flat-out myth and a lie. The prophet simply said it's going to come. Mm -hmm. And so, as a result of that, provision was made for people who haven't heaped up. So there might be some people watching, and God has given you the ability to prepare, even for others. In fact, one thing we said prophetically, and this was iterated over and over, was that the churches should be refuge places. Mm -hmm. And And they have in the past. They've mm -hmm. been amazing you know, some churches, again, it's like the wise and foolish version. Some have prepared and some always are visionary and see what's coming. We would call them maybe like Issachar type churches, mm-hmm. those who understand the time. I mean, seriously. The, again, this is like two blind people groping around in the darkness, acting as if they can actually see something. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is what we would say is a really strong prophetic, uh, not a caution. Admin- a, a strong prophetic um, a caution. <laughs> An admonition. For- yeah, a strong prophetic um, admonition. Churches that are that are watching out there. Yes, and so you know what what happens like when Hurricane Sandy. Came, the churches were actually staging areas where relief supplies mm-hmm. were brought in. Yeah, and it's so weird because so many of those churches had no prophetic insight that Hurricane Sandy was coming. Isn't that weird? You know, I would point to the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate and their disaster relief organization. I mean, they were they were literally Johnny on the spot, and and yet there's no LCMS prophets out there claiming that Sandy was coming. And the churches in Japan are, are relief organizations. Many Christian relief organizations went to New York and went to New Jersey. Uh, we had a hurricane called Katrina, the same. It, it, by the way, you know how the LCMS World Relief you know, it estimates it's what it needs for future relief? It just says that because we live in a sinful and fallen world, disasters are coming. We have no clue when. We better be ready for them. No profits needed happen and and uh uh so we ask the holy spirit what you should do you can appoint a committee someone in your church they could prepare not only for you (laughs) really you had to ask the holy spirit what to do when the holy spirit said to prepare a committee see now that's proof as far as So that's absolute irrefutable proof. They are not talking to God, the Holy Spirit, because God, the Holy Spirit would never, ever tell people to form a committee. (laughs) 
<laughs> anyway, I think I'm going to stop there. Otherwise, I'm going to bust a gut. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be uh, listening to uh, some weird things said by Russell Evans of Planet Shakers out at the Rock Church in San Diego over the weekend. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> to the Wallace Tapley Show. I'm your host, Wallace Tapley, and my official title is the only mostly accurate prophet of the end times. Uh, some of my competitors call me the second and two-tenths weasel of the apocalypse, but I do my best to ignore their comments of hate and derision. I, I do have an update this week. Ah, uh, yes, uh, my direct revelations from God this week have told me something very, very special. It should be coming in right about now. This is a goodie. It reads, This blessing is for a certain person who's currently living in Italy and is the owner of a bistro. It says that you'll be receiving one million euros. Uh, make that 500,000. Uh, 10,000. Five. Oh, um, yes. You're receiving five euros today. H heaven be praised. Oh, it seems that I'm getting another download. I do believe that it's the result of next year's Super Bowl. Uh, this could turn out to be very profitable indeed. It says the winner of the next year's Super Bowl will be the Chicago Cubs. No, wait, that's not right. I, I mean the L.A. Lakers. No, that's not right either. I, I, I do apologize, folks. My computer suffers from Plato's tenfold error syndrome from time to time. Oh, here we go. It says... Handshake error. Well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. See you next time on the Wallace Tapley Show. Goodbye!
You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. (laughs) The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. the Wallace Tapley Show. I'm your host, Wallace Tapley, and my official title is the only mostly accurate prophet of the end times. Uh, some of my competitors call me the second and two-tenths weasel of the apocalypse, but I do my best to ignore their comments of hate and derision. I, I do have an update this week. Uh, yes, uh, my direct revelations from God this week have told me something very, very special. It should be coming in right about now. This is a goodie. It reads, This blessing is for a certain person who's currently living in Italy and is the owner of a bistro. It says that you'll be receiving one million euros. Uh, make that 500,000. Uh, 10,000. Five. 
Oh, um, yes, you're receiving five euros today. Heaven be praised. Oh, it seems that I'm getting another download. I do believe that it's the result of next year's Super Bowl. Uh, This could turn out to be very profitable indeed. It says the winner of the next year's Super Bowl will be the Chicago Cubs. No, wait, that's not right. Uh, I mean the L.A. Lakers. No, that's not right either. I, I, I do apologize, folks. My computer suffers from Plato's tenfold error syndrome from time to time. Oh, here we go. It says handshake error. Well, that's all the time we have for today, folks. See you next time on the Wallace Tapley Show. Goodbye! You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. of false prophets it's literally the blind leading the blind 
You don't want to get hooked up with these people. You need people who are going to preach the word. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend on your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. Are you a member of our crew yet? Well, if not, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, right there in the center of the homepage, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One of them says, join our crew. It's a fantastic way to support us. There's little perks along the way as you are a member of the crew. Uh, you'll find that uh, from time to time we make ebooks available for our crew members. So there's little perks that are associated with being a crew member. And it's our way of saying thank you to you for supporting us month after month. But it's only $6.95 every month to support Fighting for the Faith. That's it. $6.95. Not a lot of money to you, but it means a lot to us. And the more people that join our crew, it helps balance out or, you know, basically level out our giving so that month to month we're able to meet our needs and continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. And, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you do that by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six. Zero three eight. All right. Now, because of the fact that I think that Planet Shakers is probably going to be a, an outfit that we're going to take a look at from time to time here, you know, I've given them official status in the sense that we've come up with Planet Shaker update music. So I will be introducing it now. Here is our official Planet Shaker update music. Here we go. Now, I want you to know that there was a little bit of an internal fight with me before I decided on this particular tune. I do think it's a perfectly good waste of a decent Duran Duran song. Notice that I'm not singing along to Simon Lebon, and there's a good reason for that, and that is is that I can't hit his keys. <laughs> you know, I, it would be serious, you know, fingernails against the chalkboard or microwaving the cat kind of sound if I tried to sing along with Simon Lebon. So anyway, that's our new Planet Shaker update music. Now, over the weekend, uh, Planet Shakers, uh, due to the vision of Russell Evans of Planet Shakers from Melbourne, Australia, they, the Planet Shakers team boarded airplanes and flew from Australia to San Diego, California, to the Rock Church in San Diego, California, and held their first ever United States Planet Shakers conference. And uh, what did we hear from Russell Evans? <laughs> well, to, as to be expected, because of his past, um, um, well, poor performance, 
uh, in handling God's word, we heard a lot of Bible twisting and some things that were, well, rather disturbing. That's just the best way I could put it. And so what I've done here is I've uh, gone through the audio from uh, Friday night's Planet Shakers conference and have put together some little bits and pieces that I think will help explain what exactly went wrong there with the uh, with Russell Evans and the Planet Shaker folks. And you're going to find that he sounds like, Russell Evans really sounds like a kind of a combination of a vision-casting, uh, seeker-driven megachurch pastor crossed with the Patricia King gang mixed with a little bit of televangelist. I mean, very eclectic. That's probably the best way to put it. And uh, so what I, we're going to start with a couple of different sound bites. But first, I, I don't know who the MC was who introduced Russell Evans, but I want to kind of give you a flavor for what happened uh, during the conference. Each and every you know night or day that they had it, they it started with praise and worship, them singing songs from their Limitless album, and they were pushing for people to buy that album like you wouldn't believe, but the MC, you know, there's like a pattern, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, to what they do, and that is, is the praise and worship first, then the MC comes out, and he starts to set the expectation and the tone that God's going to show up, and so our first soundbite is uh, from the Master of Ceremonies from uh, Planet Shakers, who eventually will introduce um, Russell Evans, and I just want you to hear the way the manipulation started pretty early on on Friday night, but listen to this. Come on, Jesus is in the house! I hope we didn't blow your eardrums out with that. Yes, Jesus is in the house. There's something that is just starting to happen in this place right now. Whether you're in this auditorium or you're online tonight, you can expect God is about to do something in here, in your room, in your church building, wherever you might be. Oh, so good to see you. All right, so... Expectation number one, after a little bit of uh, redundant, well, here's kind of how it works. You know, the praise and worship time, uh, the, you'll notice the songs from the Limitless album. If you want to listen to it, you just go to iTunes and download it. You have to pay the fee for it, though. But you'll notice that these are the standard 7-Eleven praise songs. It's seven words repeated 11 times or maybe 50 times. And the redundancy sounds more like, you know, the type of thing that's used to get you into an ecstatic worship experience. And what I mean by that is ecstasis is the uh, Greek word, you know, literally two words put together to stand outside of oneself. And you got to understand this. Ecstatic worship is not Christian worship. Okay. And what it basic, what these these 7-Eleven songs do is beat your brain into a pulp. And as uh, recent studies have shown that, you know, in these types of environments, the, you know, the brain releases, you know, chemicals and, you know, you know, certain, you know, homemade pharmaceuticals into the body to create some kind of a feeling of an ecstatic experience. But it's not the Holy Spirit that's at work. And so after a little bit of that has gone on, the MC comes out and says, Oh, God is about to do something. You need to expect it. So set the expectations. So, you know, then they launch into another set of these 7-Eleven redundant bash your brain with bricks until it's a mushy pulp uh, kind of songs. And and then he comes out again and to set the expectation again. So here's kind of the second version of his or second attempt at the MC setting expectation 
uh, here at uh, the Shift Conference. Not the Shift Conference, the Planet Shakers Conference. Here we go. Who's had a great day so far? Online, I don't know what sort of day you've had so far today, but we're believing that tonight you're going to move from whatever circumstance you might have been in into the presence of God in this place. So we're, we, we're, we believe you're going to move from whatever circumstance you might to the presence of God, okay? So they're believing for and having expectations. So I want you to have expectation in your heart. Believe that tonight God's going to shift something. He's already begun in people during the course of today. But whether you've been here for the last 24 hours or you just arrived online or in the room, we're just believing that God is going to do something profound in your life. So if you've got expectation in your heart, why don't you now just prepare yourself to join with Pastor Sam as the team as we worship God. Come on. All right, so their second attempt at setting the expectation. We're be- My question is, um, why does God have to use guys like this who twist the Bibles in order to have something shift in people's lives? You see, it all just feels like slick manipulation, emotional manipulation to me. So then they launch into more of this, you know, worship. In fact, you know, 30 more minutes of it, you know, uh, you know, where again, seven eleven songs, you know, seven words repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And now after 30 more minutes of this, your brain is pretty much non-functional um, as far as any ability to think cognitively, to listen with discernment or anything like that, because you're caught up in the so-called experience of the moment. And something not- noteworthy here is that they really geared the uh, the weekend conference for to you know towards young people. So this is kind of you know again something akin to like the passion conference without nearly the uh, the production value. But he- so here's you know kind of the last intro, you know, the last set of uh, setting expectations by this MC. From uh, Planet Shakers, uh, here and listen in. Jesus is in the house. Yeah, we got Jesus. He's in the back. He might pop his head out and wave at you or something. I, I don't know what. Ah, we're going to ask you right now, just to, if you could, if you're in the auditorium, just start to head back to your seats. If you're online right now, now's not the time to leave. Stay with us. We're, we're going to have an incredible few moments. As we hear from our pastor, Pastor Russell Evans, shortly. But if you could just head yeah, back. Yeah, so Jesus is in the house, so they're kind of calming people down now. And I'm going to, again, fast forward a little bit here. And I want you to hear how he introduces. And so once the, all of this, you know, emotional roller coaster with the the super high songs and then the low ballads and then... And, and all of these seven words repeated 11 times in each of these anthems. Finally, it's time to, you know, the, the crowd's whipped into a frenzy there. Expectation, Jesus is in the house. Something's going to shift. God is about to do something. We're believing for you for a breakthrough and things like that. And now it's time for Russell Evans to come out and do business. The man of God, so to speak. And listen to how he was introduced. Here we go. This room, but all over the world, there's people sitting in churches, in their homes, watching with us tonight, and uh, we're just believing that this is just the beginning, just the beginning of something powerful that God is establishing throughout ministry here in the U.S. It's not that we're coming to tell you what to do, but we're just coming to add to the landscape, and we believe God is wanting to use this as a catalyst. You know, tonight, it's a great privilege for me. You know, I've been involved with Planet Shakers since the beginning. For 15 years, I've sat in conferences, 
And I've seen time and time again, conferences just like this start out. And the first night, there's a little bit of, you know, wow, this is good. And what's going on? And people watch. And then during the day, people get touched by God. And, you know, tonight, people watching online are just seeing something happen. And it always just keeps building. But I want to tell you, it's every time, whether it's the first night or the last night, the middle night, when our founder and our visionary leader come. You're what? Yeah, let me back that up. Listen again. You're what and you're what? The last night, the middle night, when our founder and our visionary leader. Our founder and our visionary leader. I thought Christ was the head of the church and the founder of the church. This seems like, well, an inappropriate non-biblical exaltation of a, quote, pastor who's supposed to be a shepherd and a servant. But again, listen to how he's introduced. It's every time, whether it's the first night or the last night, the middle night, when our founder and our visionary leader comes to the stage... Oh, it just, mm, it just starts to go to a, a, another level. Oh, it goes to another level when your founder and visionary leader comes to the stage. And tonight, wherever you might be, in this room, all over the world, it's our incredible privilege. I know, because over 15 years it's been consistent, that tonight we're about to turn up the heat. God's about to do something. So God's about to do something because of their founder and visionary leader. He's finally here. Well, I'm glad he came to save us. So with everything you got, I want you to join with me and welcome to the stage, the founder, the visionary leader, my great friend, Pastor Russell Evans! Serious. Have you ever been in a church service where somebody came out to whip the crowd up into a frenzy so that your pastor, when he takes the pulpit, people are, oh, the founder and visionary leader is here. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? A founder and a visionary leader. So, um, yeah, let me, you know, and no sooner did he take the stage that, well, things started to take a really bad twist okay now i'm going to play for you some of the train wreck um sound bites from him but uh, listen to how russell evans you know tries to himself now piggyback on the mc's uh, job of creating the expectation that something's about to move something's about to break through because he the visionary leader is here you know well listen to this if you love jesus in this place i want you to push your neighbor and say get ready neighbor I'm ready to go absolutely crazy for the Word of God. So today, I'm ready. Say, I'm ready for a new level. I'm ready to receive my healing, to receive my breakthrough. And if you love Jesus... So I'm ready to receive my healing, to receive my breakthrough. This is nothing more than a... Snake oil salesman setting up shop, whooping people up into a frenzy so that he can sell them little jars of potion that, you know, will heal whatever ails them. Whether it's gout or, you know, maybe they'll have intestinal difficulties. Who? I'm here. I'm ready. 
to have a breakthrough because the visionary leader is here. Now, the founder and visionary leader is going to help me have a move of God, so I'm going to receive my breakthrough. Woohoo! Jesus, with everything you have, would you give him a praise like he deserves? Come on. And there's. Is, sounds like he's in pain there. They're microwaving the cat there in San Diego. Ow! 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 <laughs> what lunacy is this? Anyways, I'm going to play just a few more things for you as far as, you know, kind of samples of the buffoonery that Russell Evans engaged in when he was on the stage there. And, you know, for instance, making statements, well, like this. The church was birthed out of a prayer meeting. What are you birthing out of your prayer life? <laughs> oh, man. All these guys talking about the need for me to birth something. I'm a dude. I can't birth nothing. Hang on. Again, there's two statements kind of back to back. Listen to this. Mm. The church was birthed out of a prayer meeting. What are you birthing out of your prayer life? Yeah. A generation that doesn't seek the face of God is a generation that doesn't have a visitation of God. Uh huh. You got a Bible verse that says that? Let me back that up so you can hear it again. These are just some samples of crazy things that he said here. Generation that doesn't seek the face of God is a generation that doesn't have a visitation of God. Mm-hmm. No Bible verse that says that. Now, here's the funny thing. I told you the guy's kind of a mix between a seeker-driven, vision-casting leader, uh, the Patricia King gang, and a tele-evangelist. Okay. Uh, let me give you an example of something that sounds pretty much akin to what we'd expect from the Patricia King gang. Uh, here's Russell Evans talking about how God is like a drug. So you don't have to do what everyone else is doing. Hey, man, take some drugs. Pop a pill. Get high. No, man, I don't need to take drugs to get high. You don't? know, dude. I've been to the most high. What, what, what do you mean, Moshai? Oh, I just got in the presence of God. I opened up his word and I snorted a few lines. Yeah, that's right. Let me back that up. You heard him say that. So uh, I don't need to get high. I've been, in the, I've been with the most high. So I open up my Bible and I snort words like they're cocaine. Yeah, listen. I opened up his word and I snorted a few lines. I fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh, wow. <laughs> right. So now we got God. You know, the Bible is basically like cocaine lines on a mirror. You open it up and you snort it because God wants to give you a high. Now, that was him trying to sound something like the Patricia King gang. And here's Russell Evans sounding a lot like a televangelist. Listen in. Now, wait a sec, wait a sec, wait a sec. Wait a sec, wait a sec, wait a sec. Right now, God wants to heal some people in this room. There's someone's back being healed to my left. Someone's back is being healed right there. So now he's calling out healings at the end of the service. There is someone here right now. You have a knee injury and God's healing you right now. There is someone here who has incredible sinus problems. You're, you're over in that section at the back. God is healing you. 
So if, if you showed up there, you know, got, you're expecting your breakthrough. If you got a back problem or sinus infection or whatever, whoo, he's calling out healings right here. He's like a televangelist. This guy is like the perfect heretical hybrid. But Russell Evans's greatest skill, if you can call it that, is his ability, like a megachurch pastor, a seeker-driven megachurch pastor, to allegorize and completely miss the point of biblical passages. For instance, the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And what we're going to do now is we're going to listen to a portion of his teaching from Friday night to listen, you know, to listen to how he completely botches, mishandles, twists, and mangles, well, God's word. And so uh, this is the, the opening of his teaching regarding Elijah. And we'll skip around a little bit. You'll hear some of the lines that we heard earlier uh, just a minute ago uh, in the bigger context of what he was teaching on Friday night out there at The Rock in San Diego. Here's Russell Evans. So Elijah says, okay, let's have a showdown. And so he says, we're going to prove which God is real, whether Baal's real or the God of Israel is real. And so he says, we're going to go up the mountain and we're going to set up an altar and you get your 450 prophets of Baal and there'll be just me. You know, some of us think we are outnumbered, but I've discovered me and God are always a majority. Because my Bible says, if God be for me, who can be against me? My Bible says that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. My Bible says I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So when God lives in you, you are a majority every time. So you don't have to do what everyone else is doing. Hey man, take some drugs, pop a pill, get high. No man, I don't need to take drugs to get high. You don't know, dude. I've been to the most high. What, what, what do you mean most high? Oh, I just got in the presence of God. I opened up his word and I snorted a few lines. I fearfully and wonderfully made... But he repaired the altar that had been torn down. Then he took 12 stones. And then the Bible says he dug a trench around the altar large enough to hold about three gallons. And he piled wood on the altar and he cut the bull into the pieces and he laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water. Wait, wait, wait a second, fill it with water. They were in a drought. For three years... They were in a drought. Who's ever been in a drought before? Okay, now notice what he just did there. Okay, if you're familiar with the story from 1 Kings chapter 18, this is the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, then you know that in chapter 17 that we learn this little thing. Okay, here's what it says, starting in verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The drought was God's punishment of, of the northern kingdom for worshiping Baal. Okay, that's what's going on here. 
and the the basically the false god that they were worshiping in some senses practically dictates god's judgment the reason being is that baal is supposedly the god of the air the god who brings the rain the god who if he's really god if he's you know if baal is really god then then yahweh wouldn't have the ability to keep baal from bringing the rain but he did and not only that the lord made it clear that the rain would not come again until Elijah said so. Plain and simple, okay? This is God's judgment of Baal. This is God's judgment of those people in Israel who were worshiping this false deity. And what we're listening to here, let me back this up just a little bit, um, from Russell Evans is a classic Bible-twisting technique. Just allegorize the drought without it giving any details as to why the drought was there. This wasn't a drought caused by, you know, just some strange thing that happened that a whole bunch of people suffered and nobody particularly knows why. No, the reason they were experiencing a drought because God was punishing Israel for their idolatry. And this was announced to the king of Israel himself prior to the onset of said drought. Okay, listen again. They can fill it with water. They were in a drought. For three years, they were in a drought. Who's ever been in a drought before? You can't turn your sprinklers on on the right day because you could get fine. When you're in a drought, there's no water. What's the most precious thing in a drought? It's water. When you come to give to the Lord, (laughs) he wants what's precious to you. You might be in a drought spiritually, will come and give what's precious to you to the Lord. Put it on the altar of sacrifice. What kind of nonsense is this? So if you're experiencing a drought, God wants something precious from you in order to get rid of the drought. That's not what's going on in the story at all. This guy is basically uh, fleecing these people and shaking them down for money. You might be having a drought in relationships. Why don't you come and give your relationship to the Lord? What is precious to you? Put it on the altar. That sentence doesn't even make sense. Let me play it again. I mean, seriously, this is just spiritual gobbledygook. That sounds biblical because he quoted a Bible verse and then completely... uh, ignored what the passage really says. Why don't you come and give your relationship to the Lord? What is precious to you? Put it on the altar. And he poured on the altar. How many know that when when something's wet, it doesn't burn? (laughs) You see, I, I believe that the nations of the world, particularly the Western nations of the world, are in a spiritual drought. I, I, I think there's drought all around the place, but I know there's good... I completely agree, and you're actually one of the symptoms of the drought. You are a waterless cloud, which is what, how Scripture des- describes false teachers. Good news, because I can hear the sound of rain. See, when you talk about rain, you talk about blessing. When you talk about rain, you talk about outpouring. When you talk about rain, you talk about abundance. When you talk about rain, you talk about refreshing. When you talk about rain... You talk about heaven. But there was a drought. He pours water on. He says, God, okay, do your stuff. 
fire comes down and the Bible says the whole nation bows its knee to the Lord and, he, and they begin to cry out, the Lord, yes, he is God. The Lord, he's, yes, he is God. And so the whole nation bows its knee to God again. Would there be somebody, maybe Elijah, maybe a, a young lady, maybe a young man that would say, God, I, here I am, use me. Here I am, I'm going to pour out what's precious to me to you, that you would turn a nation to say the Lord, he is God. This is complete biblical obfuscation. He should be brought up on charges here. I mean, this is, oh, this is flat out rank twisting of God's word. Hmm. And I love what just about happened. You see, what happens is a miracle comes and people stop at their miracle, but God just doesn't want you to stop at your miracle. He wants you to take your miracle to a whole new level. What? This is a spiritual malpractice of the worst kind. Let me back this up again. Listen to this nonsense. And I love what just about happened. You see, what happens is a miracle comes and people stop at their miracle, but God just doesn't want you to stop at your miracle. He wants you to take your miracle to a whole new level. Hmm. See, yeah, what passage in 1 Kings 18 says that God... The people stop at their miracle, but God wants to take their miracle to a whole nother level, a whole new level. This doesn't say that at all. See, the Bible says in Acts, the Holy Spirit was poured out. It wasn't just for the Christians to feel good. It was poured out so they could be empowered to make a difference in their world. They took the miracle. What passage in Acts says that the Holy Spirit was poured out so that Christians can make a difference in the world? I don't know of any passage in the book of Acts that says that. Not one. And multiplied the miracle. So now we're into miracle multiplication. And the Bible says in verse 41, then Elijah said to Ahab, go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. So Ahab went to eat and drink. Now what this signifies to me is I, I, when I... Okay, I'm going to stop there and I'm going to read that portion of this text. Remember what I just read from 1 Kings chapter 17. This is the setup for the story. Let me read it again. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab... As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except for by my word. That's kind of the setup for then the drought, Elijah disappearing, heading out to a different territory, disappearing for three years, and the famine that just lays Israel waste for three years. And then it finally culminates with the showdown on Mount Carmel, God shows up, literally he shows up, and it results in Israel saying, the Lord, Yahweh, he is God, Yahweh, he is God, and then they kill the prophets of Baal, right? That's what happened, okay? And now the story continues from there, chapter 18, verse 41, after the prophets of Baal are slaughtered, here's what it says, and Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain, Okay, what does that signify? Now there's going to be rain because remember, God told Elijah, you let him know there's not going to be any rain until you say it's going to rain. So now Elijah has just said it's going to rain. Okay, again, showing that the that Yahweh, he's Lord. You know, Ahab is still resisting God, still persisting in unrepentant 
unbelief and is still an idolater. Do you think the fact that God showed up in power on Mount Carmel all of a sudden made Ahab a believer? Not even close. Okay. So here, now to add insult to injury, Elijah says, hey, guess what? It's going to rain. You better get up. You better get somewhere quick because it's going to rain. So verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and drink and Elijah went up on the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. And he said, and he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And then he said, go again seven times. So the the guy went back and forth seven times. Okay. And the seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud, like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black, the clouds and the wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. That's the story. That's what the Bible says. This was not some miraculous increase. This was not some blessing at this point. This was to add insult to injury, if you would. Uh, Ahab, persisting in unrepentant idolatry, now at this point gets gets to hear, basically hear from the prophet Elijah, hey, guess what? It's going to rain now because I've said so. And Yahweh is the one who told me to tell you it's not going to rain until I say so. And so now it's going to rain. You better hurry up. You're going to get caught in this. And sure enough, it rains. You think Ahab was excited about that? Probably not. <laughs> the text doesn't exactly say, but you can see what's going on here. Okay, so now let's find out what Russell Evans has to say about this particular text and how it's somehow an increase in multiplication of, of miracles and blessings. I eat and drink. It's, about a, it's around a time of celebration. <laughs> We're about to go somewhere. See, I believe the church should be the place of celebration. He said, go and eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of the mountain. (laughs) Here we go. Climbs up. He's on the top of the mountain. You see, I discovered when God brings a breakthrough, go up higher because there's another breakthrough coming. And the Bible says he gets up. (laughs) Listen to this. Complete and utter nonsense. Top of the mountain. You see, I discovered when God brings a breakthrough, go up higher because there's another breakthrough coming. So, man. So Elijah goes up on top of the So this means that, you know, if you've had a breakthrough, go up higher because another one's coming. This has nothing to do with breakthrough. And the Bible says he gets up on the top of the mountain and he begins to pray. <laughs> it's amazing me how many people don't pray anymore. They can put on programs, they can come and have a nice church service, but God never created the church for the consumer. He created it for the disciple. The church was birthed out of a prayer meeting. What are you birthing out of your prayer life? A generation that doesn't seek the face of God is a generation that doesn't have a visitation of God. Entertain me, do this for me, do that. No, God says, come on, come up higher. And begin to burst something. And he began to pray and he calls his servant over. He says, it hadn't rained for three years. He says, go and have a look for rain. So the servant goes for this run. And it takes him a while to look. And he goes and has a look. And he looks out and there's 
no rain and he runs back and he's there and he's running and, and Elijah says, he's there and then Elijah goes, any rain? No, he says, go again. All right, I'll go again. You're sitting there, sending me out to do all the work. No rain. Hope he doesn't send me again. Any rain? No, go again. Go again. It's all right for him to say. <laughs> Just sitting and praying all day while I'm doing the work. No rain. If he asks me to go again, I don't know. I might go to another church. <laughs> no rain? Go again. <sighs> I'm sick of going to this church. It challenges me to keep believing even when I see nothing. Notice what he's doing with the story. He's literally hijacked this entire story. He's not telling us anything about what's really going on in this text. If he asks me to go again, I'll tell him to go himself. What type of pastor is he? I don't want to go to his church anymore. He says there's a miracle coming, but where is it? He's just sitting down doing nothing. Notice that not only does this little... monologue from the servant of Elijah not appear in scripture, not at all. Um, It's somehow placing the important uh, breakthrough that's supposedly going to take place in the hands of the servant rather than in the prophet whom God said it will not rain until he says it's going to rain. Unbelievable. Go again. Serve the in the house, planted in the house. See, so many people don't get this. The guy, the Bible doesn't say those that are planted in the houses of God will flourish. See, God never called you to be a pot plant. That would move here, move there, move there, move there. I've been offended. Welcome to the world. I've had hurt. Welcome to the world. The very first thing they do when you're born is they slap you. You are in this warm place and now you come out, bat, whack. So many people miss out on their destiny because they're like pot plants and go from here to here to here to here. Oh, that pastor offended me. Well, let me get you on the other side. When pastor puts into you. So you miss your destiny because you're like a pot plant. Is that what this text is saying? And you leave and go somewhere else. How does that make us feel? We're human. Oh, the pastors are high-fiving me right now. They're going, preach that. <laughs> Woo, five times. Any, go again. Okay. Woo, I'm getting better at this. Just so you know, he's walking back and forth the length of the stage to demonstrate what this servant did because apparently the miracle was in his hands. Six. I hope he asked me to go again because I'm a really running junkie now. Go again. (laughs) You see, every time you go and look in faith, you get stronger on the inside, even if you don't see. Every time. Notice that this passage doesn't say anything about the servant becoming stronger in faith on the inside because of him going back and forth, checking to see if 
if there was rain coming. Time you go back and say, I'm going to look again. It doesn't seem like it's going to happen. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. The weather forecast says it's not going to happen, but I'm going to keep looking for my miracle. Would there be a generation that would say, I'm going to keep looking until the rain comes? I'm going to keep looking for my miracle. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, this text isn't about your miracle at all. It's not teaching anything even remotely approaching that. This is just flat-out narcissistic eisegesis by a man who has shown himself to be a skilled heretical hybrid, kind of a cross between somebody from the Patricia King gang who gets high on the Holy Ghost, a cross between the seeker-driven visionary leader and, uh, and a televangelist who calls out miracles and the like. And this happened at one of the premier seeker-driven churches in the United States, The Rock in San Diego. Miles McPherson gave his glowing stamp of approval to Russell Evans, uh, that Sunday morning, in fact, just a couple of days ago, and let him preach the Sunday morning services, every single one of them. But he didn't rightly handle God's word. He mangled it. This was emotional and spiritual manipulation of the highest degree. The guy clearly has no concept of what the Bible's about and knows how to manipulate people and whip them up into a frenzy to expect their miracle and their breakthrough and all that kind of stuff. And none of it, none of it, none of the things he said are actually taught in Scripture. This is a man who's literally, well, gone crazy on what he thinks is his particular and unique purpose and vision from God. The reality is is that this Russell Evans' so-called vision is not from God. He's not a faithful proclaimer of Christ and him crucified for our sins, and he doesn't rightly handle God's word. And scripture warns us, don't be deceived in any way. And all Russell Evans is, is a deceiver. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Sermon review on the other side of the break. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. <laughs> the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. 
That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Oh, hey, I didn't hear you come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. More objective proof, if you ask me, that false teachers are going from bad to worse, as Scripture warns us that they do. Yeah, this will be a great example of it from Mark Batterson's church. That's right, Mark Batterson of Chase the Lion and uh, the Circle Maker fame. This is his church and his associate pastor is teaching. Let me do this right here. Hang on. Here we go. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via National Community Church, Washington, D.C. Joe Schmig, uh, Schmigdahl, uh, Schmidgall presiding. It's a complicated name. Yeah, that's right. He's one of the associate teachers uh, out there at National Community Church, uh, you know, teaching with Mark Batterson. That's right. You know, Chase the Lion, Mark Batterson, Primal, is that his name of the book? Yeah. And uh, also the Circle Maker, which I liken to, well, witchcraft, because that's really what it is. It's not biblical prayer. So to kind of give you an idea of what it is that you're going to expect to hear in this particular sermon review, think of it this way. The name of the sermon is entitled Seeking the Dream Maker. Seeking the Dream Maker. And we're going to be touching on some very important, and I mean foundational texts, 
for rightly understanding the scriptures and how they relate to Christ, because the scriptures are about Jesus and what he's done for us, these are passages that get to the very heart of the matter regarding the one true faith. And Joel here, um, it's clear that he's utterly clueless about these particular biblical texts and their real significance and instead has decided to make them about the importance of you having a dream for your life. In other words, he must be sleeping himself biblically, doctrinally, and theologically um, because he's missing the whole point of these texts. So let me kill the music. Without any further ado, here is Joel Schmidgall from National Community Church. He's, he works with Mark Batterson. Here we go. Last week, I had this strange dream at night. And in my dream, I could hear this scurrying off in the distance. And so in my dream, I, I sit up in my bed and I look over and there's a squirrel on its hind legs staring me in the face. This is not a good way to start a biblical sermon. The problem is we're not going to be hearing a biblical sermon. But if you're a pastor and you're striving to be faithful to God's word and rightly teach it and proclaim it and correctly handle it, bad way to start. You start with the biblical text. We continue. And so I sit there for just a moment and all of a sudden I realize I'm awake right now. And, uh, and so I, I, I stay there for a minute and, and I'm just trying to stay calm because I'm trying to figure out how to tell Nina who's right next to me, who in these cases often will scream, uh, if put in the, the situation. And so I hear this next to me, what's going on, Joel, what's happening? I go, Hey, everything's fine. Everything's good. There's a squirrel right next to our bed right now. And immediately the squirrel goes jumping onto the curtains and runs halfway up the curtain. So I jump out of bed. The squirrel jumps off the curtains right in front of me, scurries underneath our bed. So I go around the other side to the on Nina's side and it scoots, it, it darts underneath me into the closet. Every step of the way inciting an ah from Nina. And I don't know if she was scared at the squirrel or she was scared at the sight of her husband in his skivvies trying to chase this squirrel into the closet, but it was all a scary sight. Is that too much information, man? Forget, I'm getting real tonight. Forgive me. So I go into the closet and uh, look around, and, and there were two holes uh, that the plumber had left uh, and that the squirrel got into. And so the whole week was trying to catch this squirrel. And he is taunting me, you guys. I mean, I plug the holes, he pushes the plugs out. He gets into the toilet and uses it like a hot tub. I mean, it was... A, and so finally, Nina politely, gently says to me, she says, Listen, if that squirrel is living in our walls in there, I am not sleeping in there tonight. Now, I'm going to stop here for a second. I want to point something out. Using the standard way of deciding on whether or not a sermon was a good sermon used by most American evangelicals, well, this is already a good sermon. Why? Oh, well, because he's telling a funny story. It made me laugh. Therefore, it must be a good sermon because it's entertaining. That's no way of determining whether or not a sermon is a good sermon or a bad sermon. You can laugh yourself all the way to hell by an entertaining pastor. But biblical pastors... Biblical teachers who are doing their biblical duty, they don't do this kind of stuff. We continue. So, okay, listen, baby, I got it. 
share Schmidgalls on the case. And it didn't really assure her. But I grabbed my deputy, Zeke, my three-year-old son. We went to Frager's Hardware. We rented a squirrel trap for $4.90. We brought it back. We collected some acorns. We got some apples. We got Zeke's favorite cereal. And we took it upstairs. We set this trap. And Zeke was hilarious. He was so funny because he had his little Nerf gun. And he's taking around and he calls it his pewer. I'm going to pew him, Dad. If he comes, I'm going to pew him. And so we're getting into this thing. And uh, so so we go up a couple hours later to check out the trap. And I look in and it's dark and motionless. I'm like, ah, bummed out. We didn't catch him. And I close the door and then I realize, but the trap door was down. So I'm like, Zeke, why don't you just go look in there and check it again. So... (laughs) Our good father, right? So he opens the door and sticks his head in. He looks back. Dad, we got the squirrel. And so we're ju- we start jumping. We're high-fiving. We go in the room, and the squirrel, like, jumps out. So we freak out, but then we start, you know, again going. We're like Alabama at the national championship game. We just dominated the opponent. We're feeling good. It was this week of adventure. Quite literally, I was chasing my dream the entire week. A lot of us find ourselves chasing a dream and we don't know how to catch it and there's elements of a lot of us find ourselves chasing a dream and don't know how to catch it um where on earth in the bible does it have all the dream catching strategies laid out for us as biblical doctrines when did this become a problem that Christianity supposedly has the solution to. In fact, let me ask you this. Since the ultimate apex thing that happens in the Bible is Christ's sacrificial, penal substitutionary death on the cross for your sins and mine, what does that have anything to do with you catching an elusive dream? Answer, nothing. The Bible doesn't give advice on how to catch your dreams. Fear to it, and there's elements of frustration. And there's this sense that even if the Father promises us the the capturing of this dream, we don't know that we have faith. Whoa, 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 wait a second here. Listen again. And there's this sense that even if the Father promises us the, the capturing of this dream, we don't know that we have faith that that's actually going to happen. Um, where in the Bible does God the Father promise to help you catch elusive, wascally dweens? Answer, there isn't a single verse that says this. This is not biblical Christianity. This is something completely different. Genesis chapter 15, we find Abram. Now, go ahead and open your Bible to Genesis chapter 15. This is what I was referring to earlier. This is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. One of the most important. And Schmidgall here has, you're going to find out, he's utterly clueless as to the real significance of this passage. I'll let him teach on it first, and then we're going to take a look at it ourselves. Genesis chapter 15, we find Abram in a dreamlike state. 
And we're going to start in verse 1, Genesis chapter 15. So we find Abram in a dreamlike state. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. He said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Okay, now what he just read is one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. Abram believed God and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Now, I'm not going to comment on what that means yet, but let's see here what Schmidgall does with it. Abram comes out of this experience with a fully formulated dream. What? Number one, that he would have a great inheritance. Number two, that he would take possession of the land. Now... We're here today, and all of us have different dreams. Okay, we're going to pause right there and take a look at Genesis chapter 15 to see if that's, if this is what this passage is about, about how you can employ strategies to help track down, chase, and achieve elusive dreams, or if this passage is really about something else, and it actually is about something else. This is one of the core passages of Christianity that relates to the gospel itself. Let's take a look at it. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. We're partway through the story of Abraham by this point, but we get to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. Here's what it says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Okay. But Abram said, O Lord God, What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him, brought Abram outside and said, Look toward the heaven. Number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed God, believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. I'm going to stop there for a second here. What's going on in this story? Well, if you you were only 15 chapters into the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 lets us know what's going on. Okay. If you remember in chapter 1 and 2, we in chapter 1, we have the grand sweep of God's creation. Genesis chapter 2, we have kind of a drilling down into a lot of the details of the creation, but specifically the very unique and special creation of man created in the image of God, and God creates the male and female, and you know, it's, it's, it's great stuff about what God has done in creating us, and he gave... Uh, Adam and Eve a job to care for the Garden of Eden and to care for the creation. And there was a rule. They cannot eat from the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they cannot eat from the, uh, from the tree of life. But they were deceived by the, ser- by the serpent, 
ate from the knowledge of uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and fell into sin, and they were punished and cursed by God. Okay, and in Genesis chapter three is the first promise of a savior, where the Lord God says to the serpent, okay, and the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, and he will have his heel bruised by the serpent. That's what the text says. It kind of Rosebro's paraphrase there. But that's a promise that there would be a coming one who would crush the head of the serpent, who would defeat Satan. That's the the, the proto-euangelion, the proto-gospel itself. And from there, we step out into human history from the beginning forward, first family in, in humanity forward, and now we're following a specific genetic line in human history. And that line goes straight through, you know, you got Adam, I'll fast forward to Noah, to Terah, to Abram, and then through there, through Isaac, Jacob, you, you get what I'm saying here. You know, if you're not familiar with the genetic line of Jesus, Go and look in the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter. But what we're what we're looking at here is one of the major, major patriarchs of the Old Testament, and yeah, he is a direct descendant of Jesus. We're following that genetic line, and through his offspring, the whole world would be blessed. And this is what God had promised Abram. And it's he's not talking about offsprings like, you know, for instance, the entire. Uh, clan of people who are genetically related to Abram, but one particular offspring, and that would be the promised Messiah. Okay, now at this time, Abram's getting old. He's getting old, and God had promised him a, a, a son. No son has arrived. Okay, and so God appears to Abram, assures him, "No, Eliezer of Damascus is not going to be your heir, but your own son will be." And it says, and Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, keep verse 6 in mind. I'll highlight it again before we take a look at it uh, through the New Testament, because the New Testament gives us the right way of understanding it. But uh, that that word, uh, credited, uh, credited or counted, it's where we get the biblical doctrine of what's called imputed righteousness. This has there's a core component of salvation by grace alone through faith alone because when you believe and trust in Christ for the promises of salvation and the forgiveness of sins, just like Abram here believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness, same with you. When you when you trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, God counts that as righteousness. Credits credits you with being righteous, declares you to be righteous, and he clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. Okay? But we continue, though. Verse 7. So he said to him, I am Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring to me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. This, by the way, is a suzerain covenant that's being cut here. Usually these covenants are cut between two parties, okay? And there's promises 
in these covenants and then curses associated with not fulfilling your end of the bargain. Watch what happens in this. Okay. So as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces." On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river to, of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay? Did you notice? This is a unilateral covenant. God making all the promises God assuming all of the responsibility and the curses if he does not keep his promises. That's what's going on here. This is a one-way unilateral covenant. And where was Abram when this covenant was being cut and all the formalities were going on? He was absolutely asleep. That's what's going on, okay? So this is gospel, not law. He didn't earn this. This is God promising, and he's going to make good on his promise because that's what God does. Okay. Now we're going to fast forward to Romans chapter 3 so that we can get the context as we come into Romans chapter 4 where this passage, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, what that all means. Okay, Romans chapter 3 Verse 9 is the you know, kind of the concluding punch of, a, of an argument that the Apostle Paul is laying down, basically saying every human being is sinful. There's none righteous, not even one. That means Jew, Greek, doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, everybody's under sin and in need of a Savior. That's what he's going to basically argue. And then from there, he's going to basically claim, therefore, we can't be saved by keeping God's law Instead, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. Watch. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For all, we've all, all already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay? All of humanity is under sin. So now... We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God 
has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So then what becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles also? Well, yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Well, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. So what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified, or that means to be declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 is one of the primary ground zero passages regarding the gospel. It, it, it here, Romans chapter 4, unpacks it for us and theologically interprets it and shows that the important thing here is that Abram believed God and it was credited or counted to him as righteousness and the same thing applies to us who believe that Jesus was handed over for our sins and raised again on the third day for our justification. We are credited as being righteous because we believe the promises of God the same way Abram believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. You get it? This is a key passage regarding salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. This is it, it's so important that Romans 4 spends nearly the entire chapter. In fact, the entire chapter of Romans 4 is all about explaining the theological significance of that. This touches on the very gospel itself. The Joel Schmigdahl of National Community Church, where Mark Batterson is head pastor, has no clue what's going on in this passage. He thinks this passage is about having a dream for your life and, you know, and then learning how to catch those elusive dreams. Listen again. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Abram comes out of this experience with a fully formulated dream. Number one, that he would have a great inheritance. Number two, that he would take possession of the land. Now, we're here today and all of us have different dreams. And that's what makes this series so much fun. One person is, is moving towards that dream job that they, they've been studying for for so long. Genesis 15 has nothing to do with you moving towards your dream job. Another person is, is thinking about that significant other. Another person is hoping or, or dreaming for healing in the midst of sickness. But all of us come in with different dreams. But here's the beauty of the scripture, that, that no matter what our dream is, the principles are building blocks in our lives that we can apply to whatever situation, whatever hurdle we have in front of us. Really? So this passage is about applying building blocks so that you can overcome hurdles to achieving your dreams? This is so unbelievably bad that it, it doesn't border on satanic. It flat out is. And so we take this scripture with Abram and there's, there's four things that happen for him to get to this place where he has this, this full sense of a dream. Number one, Abram gets in God's presence. You can get your inspiration for a resolution. Uh, no, he doesn't get in God's presence. Abram's asleep. And God shows up. 
So um, Abram was completely passive. Read Romans, uh, not Romans, but Genesis 15, 1 and 2 again. Solution from an infomercial. But to get a dream, you've got to turn your TV off. You've got to put your cell phone away and you've got to get in the written word of God and you've got to spend time in the living word of God to get a dream from Almighty God. John chapter 14. So I'm supposed to read the word in order to get a dream from Almighty God? Where does the Bible say to do that at all? Dean. We see that Jesus comes along and the disciples are in a bad place and he speaks life into them. And it's one of the most comforting scriptures in all of the gospel. And he comes to him and he he starts talking about life after death. And he starts talking about how he will go and prepare a place for them. And he starts talking about the assurance of heaven that is to come. And what do the disciples say? What do they respond? How do they respond to this? We see it in verse 5. But we don't know the way. We are never satisfied with a promise, are we? We always want the blueprint. We want and the disciples, they want assurance. They want direction. They want to know the way. And what does Jesus say in response to them? You want to know the listen, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life and no man comes to the Father except through me. If we want a God-given dream, we have to encounter Almighty God. Okay, got to stop it again. He was quoting from the Gospel of John chapter 14. Again, one of the literal high-water marks in all of Scripture pertaining to the Gospel. Okay, he quoted it out of context and didn't point you to what the text is pointing you to, or who the point the text is pointing you to. That's Jesus. Watch this. John chapter 14, verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So here Jesus is telling the disciples, he's going to leave them. He's going away. And he says that they know the way to where he's going because he's going to prepare a place for them. This has nothing at all to do with you reading your Bible, getting in God's presence so that you can receive from God a dream for your life. This is about Jesus' assurance that he's going to come for them, that he's going to take them to himself, that he's going to prepare a place for them. And then Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is salvation in no other person than Jesus. There is salvation in no other name but Jesus. That's what this text is saying. 
This has nothing to do with you receiving a dream from God. What is this man doing to this text? Listen again. Listen, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. If we want a God-given dream, we have to encounter Almighty God. This text doesn't say anything about receiving a God-given dream. It's about salvation in Christ alone. We don't just get inspired whatever's around us or come up with it. It doesn't matter. No, we have to come before the Lord and spend time in his presence. We've got to have an encounter with God. Any of us can come up with a dream. And we have different dreams. Maybe some of us dream about being rich. Maybe we dream about that shortcut to success. Maybe we dream about fame. Maybe we dream about that that position that, that we could get. Any one of us can come up with a dream. But where is your dream born? What is the birthplace of your dream? Where did it start? In Jeremiah 23, God says, The prophets caused my people to forget my name by their dreams. They cause my people to forget my name by their dreams. What purpose? And the irony of this, I mean, it's, it's like satanic irony, is that what Joel Schmigdal is doing is the very thing that, is, that God is warning against in Jeremiah 23. You're causing people to not hear the gospel. To not know what God's word really says. To not make the point about what the Jesus is the only way of salvation. Because you're telling people that they can have an encounter with God and receive a dream from him. From these passages that are about salvation by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. But you've, you've completely twisted them and made them about dreams. And you're making it so that people are not knowing the name of, uh, and knowing the truth of God. Purpose does your dream serve? Maybe you're here today and you say, I have a dream and God hasn't fulfilled it. I'm frustrated. Well, listen, maybe it's because it's your dream and not God's dream. And maybe God allows you to live in the frustration of that dream because he knows you have to die to your dream for your dream to become his dream. And when it becomes his dream, you can step into the promise and the fulfillment, not in your time, in his time, not in your way, in his way. There's no biblical passages that say this because our calling is to submit and to surrender to him what's the motives behind your dream our dreams can hinder god's dream within us have you ever had a pan that that after you cook you overcook a meal it gets so dirty and crusty that that you know you just set it aside because you don't want to deal with it right now because it's going to take a while to get all that grime and that dirt off and so what do you do you take it You put it in water, you soak it, right? And you leave it overnight, then you come back to it the next day. And what happens? Then you can just kind of wipe that stuff off. And now it's available for its intended use, okay? I believe here today that there are purposes in this place. That God has dreams in this place that are uncovered within our soul, within our hearts. That Yeah, I'm glad you, you believe that, but this has nothing to do with what the Bible says. You're not teaching what scriptures teach. That his intended purposes are there, but we have hindrances in our life. We have dirt and we have grime that comes against us and we set ourselves aside. So what do we do? The only thing that we are called to do is to come before God and soak in the presence of God. 
because we get in his presence when we so if we get in the presence of God and soak in his presence God will give us a dream what passage of scripture says this there isn't one we soak in his presence all that stuff just starts to wipe away all the grime and the dirt and the gook and the sin in our lives begins to wash away and then we come back to a place where we are ready and prepared for our intended use in his time and in his way we see the scriptures lead us to very clear point and abram gets in the presence of god and then number no he fell asleep and god appeared to him big difference he wasn't soaking number 2 he prays through his problems abram laid out his petitions before god he comes to him and he says listen i cannot i can't do this thing this is out of, I am unable. God, I need you to step in and take control. And he takes and he owns up to his problems. And he prays through what? Through his problems. A lot of us here at the church have, have begun to give towards this dream that we talk about in Southeast D.C. And, and we're talking about a dream center and we're, we're raising money and we're praying into this thing and we're working hard and we're so excited about what God is doing. And, and it's been fun to practice this principle in that setting, to practice the principle of praying through problems. And so we take our teams that we have. So in other words, the folks there at National Community Church in Washington, D.C., where Mark Batterson of the Circle Maker book is uh, lead pastor, they're trying to open up their own dream center. We've adopt a block, and we take our teams out on Saturdays, and we get to go neighbors. And, and one of our neighbors, Lynn, uh, man, for months we have been praying uh, for her cousin, Peaches, who is just in a, a desperate situation who is depressed and has been so for, so every time we say, we're praying for peaches, we don't know what to do. Hey, it's your problem though. All right. It's our problem too. We're going to pray through this thing. It's awesome. This last Saturday for the first time, we got a positive report that, that she's got a new job, that she's doing well, that she's overcoming depression. Praise God. We're going to pray through those problems. We're going to do this. Another couple that we encounter, their thing is, Hey, we need groceries at the end of the month. All right. It's your problem. It's our problem. We're going to pray through this thing together. So we start to pray and we've got a list. We've got a prayer list that we share needs after we go out during the day. And some people who hadn't even been to our group before show up with groceries. Hey, we're going to pray through these problems. God will come in his time, in his way. This last summer, we took some youth out to a river house and I got the chance to share about setting goals coming into a new school year. And so I said, what goals are you setting? Let's think about it right now. We broke into small groups. We sat down. The first girl in my small group says, uh, my goal for this semester, I don't want to get a, in a single fight for this whole semester. All right. I don't know what to do with that one, but we're going to step into this. This is our, we're going to pray through our problems. Listen, do not allow your problems to dictate your dreams. Allow your prayers to dictate your dreams. Do you know that dream and fear go hand in hand? Don't they? All of our dreams are, are right there walking with fear. And it depends on the day that you're in, doesn't it? Today, what are you doing? Are you walking in fear or are you walking in dream? Are you walking in problem or are you walking in prayer? 
Are we able to step out of those things into faith in God? He he has called us to rise above. Listen, I'll be honest. I've been praying for a dream center for years. For years. And there are roadblocks. There are hurdles. And there are things that come against us. And guess what? That hasn't even stopped. And we're, we're making advances. We're striding. And, and, man, God is doing more. And i just amazed at the testimonies and the winds that are coming. But there continues to be hurdles. Some might call those hurdles mountains. And we look at the mountains in front of our dreams, in front of our destiny. And we say, that mountain is in the way of me achieving my dream. That mountain is in the way of us stepping into our destiny. But that's not true. That mountain is the way. That mountain is in the way of us achieving our destiny. The Bible is not the message of principles that you can apply so that you can achieve your dream destiny. It's about being it's about sinners being brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. The Bible is about what Jesus has done for us, not principles to apply so that you can achieve your destiny. This shows that Joel is completely, utterly clueless about what the real message of the Bible is, and yet he's a teaching pastor at National Community Church. To your dream. That mountain has been placed there so you can go right. Abram prays through his problems. He looks his problems directly in the face. Says, God is able. If God is willing, then we will overcome this thing. This is not my dream. What's it mean? It means what I said earlier. If it's your dream, it probably won't happen. If it's your dream, you've got to live in a state of frustration so it dies. And so what happens then when your thing dies, his thing lives. In my weakness, he is strong. In my death, he gives life. We've got to lay those things down at the altar of God. And when we do, we step into the dream that God has for us. Hallelujah. Number three, he gets out of his routine. Mark, Pastor Mark often says, a change of pace plus a change of... So Abram got out of his routine. Really? What passage says that? Change of pace plus a change of place equals change of perspective. And that's what happens here. Abram has to get out of his man-made situation and step into a God-created environment to be able to see the length and the breadth of the dream that God desires to perform. Unbelievable. We've become so programmed in our lives that we have no time for creation. We have no time for, for revelation from God. The best time during our holiday was when Nina and I took a half day off and we got away from everything. We got away from the kids and we just went out and we talked and we prayed and we dreamed about our family in 2013. And it was awesome. We just got out of our routine and our environment. We went over to Barnes and Noble for a couple hours and then we went to Founding Farmers. Hallelujah. They got those little donuts, the beignets thing, you know, the beignets from down south and all. Oh, they're so good and they are, they're holy in their rights. And, and you know, I, I take Pastor Mark's equation and just change it up a little bit. You know, my thing is more like change of venue plus change of menu equals a change within you. You know what I'm saying? 
And, and good food inspires God ideas. That's just me. That's just me. My stars are vignettes. That's just me, though. You know, you find if for Abram, he's got to get outside of his house. He's got to look up at the stars to understand the magnitude of the greatness of God and what he can accomplish. And when you take your eyes off of your eight foot ceiling and you begin to look outside into the stars of what he has created, you begin to understand this is not about me. This is not about my dream. This is, yeah, actually, this is all about you. This is a dream theology that is absolutely foreign to Scripture. These texts don't say this at all. Romans 4 interprets Genesis 15 for us, and that's what it's about. It's not about you achieving your destiny or applying principles. Get into the presence of God and pray through your problems and get out of your routine like Abraham did so that you can find your God-given dream. This is absolute, well, bovine scatology. This is about God's dream and stepping into his promise, number four. Yep, it's about stepping in, all right. Like I said, it's about bovine scatology, about stepping into bovine scatology. This is a completely satanic message. Belief. Abram believes, verse 6, and it's credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't matter if you get a dream. It doesn't matter if your dream is big, it's bulky. It doesn't matter if you understand the depth of it. If you don't know that God is able, it ain't happening. It's not going to come about. It's outcome versus income. The outcomes never happen if you don't have an income of the Spirit of God in your life. John 6, 29. It says that, that our calling, that our work is to have faith, is to believe in what? In whom? To believe in myself, no. To believe in my friends, no. To believe in my idea, to believe in my dream, to believe in my ability, no, 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 and no. To believe in the one whom he sent, to believe in Jesus. When we believe in him, we put ourselves in a different position. Abram receives this incredible vision from God. But listen, he's, he's like 75 years old in this situation. And just because Abram received a direct revelation, prophetic message from God, which is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, because that's who this is about, doesn't, there's no passage anywhere in Genesis 15 that says, therefore, you should expect to receive a, a vision from God, a dream destiny for your life just like him, and apply the same principles that Abraham applied so that you can get yourself into position to receive this dream destiny that God wants to lay out on you. Not one passage says this. So you're telling me, okay, the man who is going to be a father, literally the father of many nations, is a grandpa with no kids. That's our situation right here. I mean, this is crazy. It makes no sense. But that's the beauty of the dreams that God lays within us. That's the beautiful part of this whole thing, that our job is not to pursue our dream. Our job is to pursue the dream maker. It's never too late to be who you might have been. 
Joel 2, 28 and 29 says this, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. Again, it's just, I, the irony here is not lost on me. And that is, is that um, this passage that he's quoting from Joel has its fulfillment in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. This is, again, one of the primary, most important biblical texts in all of Scripture. Now, all Scripture is important. That being said, there are certain texts that are just pillars that really help us understand the grand sweep of what's going on in Scripture. This Joel um, passage that he's quoting from is fulfilled. Acts chapter 2, verse 14, is the day of Pentecost, okay? The Spirit has just fallen like tongues of fire. There are, there are folks who are Christians who are in the upper room who are now out proclaiming the wonders of God in languages that they didn't even know, okay? And the people there are, you know, from all over the Mediterranean world are hearing the gospel in their own language, okay? And so Peter stands up. Okay, and well, here's what he says. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions, and your old men dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heavens above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This text from Joel, and that's Peter quoting it, is all about those who call on the name of the Lord and are saved. And this, you know, the prophetic vision of Joel here is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Then Peter goes on and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He goes on to preach one of the most important sermons of all time, literally. There on the day of Pentecost, the day the church is born. And he quotes that same passage and makes it about Jesus. This text is not about you getting a dream destiny for your life. What Joel Smigdal is doing here, again, I reiterate it and I stand by what I say. This is flat out satanic. He's completely robbing Christ of his glory by stripping Christ out of these texts and teaching falsely from these texts as if they're promising you some dream destiny for your life because he wants to start a dream center. Flat out satanic. And men and women alike, servants, will experience an outpouring of my spirit in those days. 
When dreams begin to happen among us, it's a sign of the Spirit and the presence of God at work in our lives and in our community. There isn't a single passage that says that, and that Joel passage doesn't teach it. So Abram has his dream. 75 years old, though. I mean, that's old. But he believes, okay, this can happen. I guess so. And so so what he does, though, is he understands, i got to giddy up, though, for this thing to happen. And so he puts a timeline on God. And when, well, here's what happens. Nothing. <laughs> nothing changes. Nothing happens. And so Abram gets frustrated. And he decides, okay, since it's not working in my timing, in my way, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And so when Sarah doesn't get pregnant, his wife, he goes to Sarah's servant, Hagar. And he is with Hagar. And then Hagar gets pregnant. So when things didn't happen in his will, in his way, he decided to step in and try to fix things for God. If you pursue the right dream with the wrong motive, it won't be a dream. It will be a nightmare. And that's what Abram stepped into. He stepped into a nightmare, both short-term and long-term, because his family began to fight right now, and it would fight for the rest of his days. It would fight for the rest of his lives. It's, patient, it's, it's patience versus passion. He had the passion to receive God's vision, but he didn't have the patience to wait for God's promise. Listen, God's vision is not a slave to our timing. Do you know that's true? He's not waiting for us to give the green light, to give the okay, and now this thing can happen. No. When your dream doesn't happen in your time or in your way, what do you do? How do you react? Some of us quit. And we give up and we say, I don't, I don't believe in God. I'm sick. Of, I'm frustrated at God. Or I don't want to deal that with that right now. And so we step aside or we walk away and we quit because we don't want to deal with the disappointment. And we don't want to feel the pain. But you know that, that there are different kinds of pain. There's pain that's destructive and there's pain that's constructive. And there's pain that, that tears you down, it wears you down. It pushes you down. And then there's pain that builds you up, that picks you up, that makes you stronger. And so when we look at this idea, we see that, that complainers see pain as problem. That complainers see pain as punishment. But disciples see pain as preparation. As getting you ready for what is to come, for what God has in store for every single one of us. Some of us don't quit, but we take things in our own hands, right? Just like Abram, he has this incredible vision from God. And then it doesn't happen, so he begins to be impatient, and he decides to take things into his own hands. Listen to this. This is important. There's a difference between intentionality and manipulation. There is a big... Yeah, and you're intentionally manipulating God's word to make it say something it doesn't say. Big difference between intentionality and manipulation. We need to have intentionality in our lives. In fact, some of us need to hear that word today. 
Like that's the one we need to take home. We need to get intentional about those things that God has given to us. We need to step out and stop aimlessly wondering. We need to get off our rear and get it in gear. We need to step out and we know the priorities that God has given to us. We need to step out and go. We need to chase our dreams. We need to begin to set goals and pursue those things and pursue God. But the pursuit of God's will cannot turn into the manipulation of our priority. We say that one more time. The pursuit of God's will cannot turn. Yeah, it doesn't matter how many times you repeat it. None of this is found in the Bible. None of it. Turn into the manipulation of our priority. Intention turns into manipulation when there's no patience. Now, what's patience? It was great on the way over here. Uh, I drove past a little church by our house and it, the sign outside said, patience is waiting for God's will. All right, I'm going to borrow that for just a minute. <laughs> We've got to have patience to stay in a place of intentionality. Many years ago. What passage in the Bible says that we need to have patience to wait for intention, whatever. None of this is from the Bible. This is all a dream theology concocted in the puny little mind of Joel Schmigdahl. This is not biblical. I began to feel a prompting or a calling to serve in a, an environment of, of full-time ministry capacity. And so and I was excited. You know, when you know what you want to do, when you have a dream, you get excited, right? And you start to work towards that. And so I was excited, and, and there's this job opportunity that came about. And I don't know if you're way, this way, but, but sometimes a, an opportunity presents itself, and I begin to, um, to connect the dots and begin to think about how this is exactly the right, and how God is setting it up, and how this is perfect, and this is even God's will. And I Really, why do you think that God would call you into ministry? Since you do not know how to handle his word correctly. This is probably not the God, the Holy Spirit calling you into ministry. I'm like 99.9999999999999999% sure that that wasn't God, the Holy Spirit. Start to jump ahead of the game. And so that's what I did with this job opportunity. And then what happens? I don't get the job. Disappointment. Extreme Frustration. Frustrated with God, frustrated with myself. And, and then what happens? And then, okay, well, I just need to talk. I need to explain this out a little bit more. I need to work a little bit harder. And then what do you do? You start to try to manipulate the situation because you're going, hey, God, like, I had this dream. And I know it's from you. But then here was the, the outgrowth of the dream. And, and, like, were you sleeping? Did you miss it? Were you playing Galway? Like, you miss this, and I need to try to fix it now. And you start to try to manipulate the situation. You missed it. This was right. Here's the thing, though. It wasn't right. (laughs) Maybe, was it the right idea? Yes. Was it the right timing? No. Now, here's the secondary question. Why was it not the right timing? Was that because God wasn't ready? Or because I wasn't ready. Let me say it this way. Some of us have been given a dream. We've been given a dream by God. It's a great dream. It's an awesome dream. We are excited about that dream. But that dream can be right for us. But we might not be right for that dream yet. I'll say it this way. We might be right for that dream. But we might not be ripe for that dream. 
Maybe we don't have enough scars yet to, to stay in a place of humility. Maybe we don't have the experience yet to know to always come back and to always give glory to God in all situations. Whatever it is, it's not just about pursuing and catching the right dream. We need, to, we need to, to grapple with that idea. It's not just about pursuing and catching the right dream. It's about becoming the right person. God's dream for you is not just about what you're doing. It's about who you are becoming. Like Abram, we can live in pursuit. And we can man, manufacture a dream. But when you try to make God's will happen, you step into the place of living in the consequence of trying to play God. That's what happens. Where did you find this out again? What Bible passage? Oh, you're not. You're not actually teaching from any biblical passage. You're just making all of these assertions and confidently at that. These are very confident assertions that you're making regarding you know, how to achieve the dream and get the dream and do this with the dream. There ain't any single biblical passages that teach this. In fact, you know, you could go back into the writings of the church fathers and look at their sermons, and you will find that none of them ever preached anything remotely even coming close to any of this. This is just a completely concocted, contrived, ego-driven theology that doesn't have its basis in the revealed word of God. But like I said, in the little puny space of, uh, of Joel Smigdahl's mind, this is not biblical. This, is, this isn't Christianity. It's a, a Schmidgallism. That's what this is. Now, we agree with and we love God's promises, don't we? Ooh, that's good. I like that. Yes. God, your promises are good. But, but oftentimes we don't agree with the construction of his promises. And so we're left with two very, yes, I agree in the promises, but no, I don't like how you're trying to bring these things about it. So how do you bridge that gap? It's a very simple word, and it's called faith. Faith sounds a lot easier on paper, doesn't it? (laughs) And then you begin to practice it, and you realize faith extends yourself spiritually. We come before God. We begin to understand our calling, that our calling isn't a just about what we are doing, is it? I remember the, the first time, well, I remember uh, when my wife came to me and she told me that uh, she was pregnant with our, our firstborn. And I uh, so excited. I was emotionally overwhelmed. And uh, we were talking and I'm just thinking, man, I am so excited about having our little boy. And then I realized, okay, but well, there might be another chromosome in play here. And uh, on January 29th, almost six years ago, we had Eloise. Oh, and by the way, he's preaching about himself now. Eloise Kimberly Schmidgall. And she was perfect. She still is perfect to us, not everyone. (laughs) And um, we were so excited. I couldn't ask God. I wouldn't trade her for anything. She was absolutely perfect. But when we had, I was afraid. I was scared of little girls. 
Like with little boys, you just, you know, you get them and you kick them around a little bit and you throw dirt on their wounds and you take them to a ball game and, and it's all good, right? But, but how, like, I don't know as a dad, how am I supposed to treat a little girl? How do I raise her up? I don't know how this works. I remember talking with some friends. I remember talking with my brother about it, just saying this. And so I started to ask questions. I started to watch some videos. I started to read some books. But I remember reading this one book that, that really impacted me. And it was a book, uh, it was from a, a woman journalist who began to talk about her relationship with her father. She talked about who her dad was and how who he was affected who she became, about how she saw herself, and about how she perceived other people. And I began to have this, this realization that, man, I need to be there and I need to to be present and fully there. And I need to take care of my little girl, but I also need to understand that it's not just about that. It's also about me continuing to become the person that God has called me to be and and continuing to pursue the dreams that God has placed in my life. When I think about the dream of my little girl becoming a beautiful woman of God, both inside and out, that dream is not accomplished just by what I do. But it's accomplished by who I am around her and with her. It's, it's not just a one-sided thing here. And sometimes I think we can get so focused on what we are to do, the action points and the steps. But the point is this, that it's about the, other, it's about the integrity that I live with. It's about the, the values that I think and that I believe and I live. You know that, that what your parents gave to you was not just what they said. It's not just what's taught, but it's what's caught, right? And what they really believed and what you really saw. Again, just a bunch of unbiblically substantiated assertions. This guy is like talking to hear himself talk. Uh, Those are the things that are passed on to you. Same with our kids. What do we really believe? What do we really live out? It's about who I am in front of my kids that affects their destiny, their dream, their future. So our dreams should not just focus on behavior. They should focus on molding of our character. God's dream for you is not always about what you are doing, but about who you are becoming. He calls us out and he gives us a dream. A lot of us have started our New Year's resolutions. More of us have ended our New Year's <laughs> resolutions. It's funny when I'm talking to somebody about resolutions and, and they're telling me theirs. I'm like, wow, you're going to do that for a whole year? Well, no, no. I mean, probably, you know, a couple of weeks or a month or so. Like we've gotten to that point where a New Year's resolution is for the month of January, hopefully, right? <laughs> Can we make it one month? But a dream is bigger and longer than a resolution. I pray that we're not so short-sighted that when we think about dreams and, and when our dreams are not happening in our timing or in our way, that we will still understand that the purposes of God are still being accomplished. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 and 11, is the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return void. It will not return empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it.
It will not reach. So what's the purpose that God sends out his word? So that you can receive a dream and destiny for your life? Nope. It's not what scripture says. Scripture is written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we have life in his name. That's what scripture is about. Return void, but will always be accomplishing exactly what he intended it to accomplish. We don't like the intended part, but that's a part of his purposes coming about in our lives. In Genesis chapter 17, God comes along. And he reaffirms this promise that he gave Abram back in verse in chapter 15. But this time, Abram is 99 years old. It's been 24 years, but it took 24 years for Abram to understand that it's not about what I am doing. It's about who I am becoming. And so what happens? God comes along and he changes his name from Abram to Abraham, the father of many nations. And the next year. At 100 years old, he has a son named Isaac. And the rest of the scriptures are the fulfillment of this God-given dream, of this dream that Abram had. In fact, most major religions point back to, to the Abrahamic covenant. He had a dream, and then he had faith, and he saw that fulfilled in God's way, in God's timing, God's vision. Your dream can easily become the most frustrating thing in your life. It will become the most frustrating thing in your life until you embrace this idea. Yeah, not nearly as frustrating as um, this false teaching. Another great passage here. Um, Paul preaching to, uh, let's see, which uh, the people at Lystra. He, sa- he basically says, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Scripture is about turning you from vain sin, false gods and, and wickedness to a living God who forgives you because he came to earth, was born of the Virgin Mary and suffered and died for your sins on the cross and rose again bodily from the grave on the third day. That's what the scriptures are about. Of becoming. We're all in different places today. Some of us are trying to formulate a dream. Others are are grappling with a dream. And then some of us are, are trying to pursue a dream in our lives. But wherever we are, I pray that, that you wouldn't just pursue a dream, but that you would pursue the dream maker. And praying over this sermon, I just man, just praying and believing that there are people here today, that there are people listening to this sermon that you desire to unleash those dreams within them, that they have put them aside, they have set them apart, and they've focused so hard on them and forgot about the equation of God-given dreams. Just like earlier I talked about, we caught this squirrel and they took the cage out, and the, and the squirrel's going nuts in the cage. I threw it in my car, and I mean, it's kind of freaking me out a little bit, like he's going to get out or something. So, but I took it down, and I took it down by the river, and I opened it up, and I, I released that. And here's the thing, like at some point, we have to get to the place where we say, okay, I'm going to catch, catch, catch. I'm going, going, going. But at some point, we have to release those things. We have to let go. We have to die. to. So when you die, to- you need to release your squirrels. Get to it. Otherwise, your dream will die or something. 
Let's pray. Yeah, no, let's not. Um, it's clear you have... N- I don't even know what God you're praying to. Because you can't even get detail number one right when you're opening up the Bible. It's clear that you're not interested in the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. You've got your own God that you're projecting onto the Scripture who ain't even there. Okay? Because the God of the Bible is not all about giving you dream destinies and things like that. He's about calling you to repentant faith and trust in his beloved son who died on the cross for your sins so that you can be forgiven and have eternal life in him, not a dream destiny. Ah! Anyway, so what do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ as vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>